think we all have strengths, weaknesses, and so being authentic to yourself of how are you building a team that highlights your strengths and covers your weaknesses and being self-reflecting and self-critical of knowing what those are. Uh, so I think that's probably the first thing I think for any leader. I think all the best ones I've been around have all been very, very self-aware. And so I think that would be the challenge, I think, for everybody. To try to, how are you self-aware around your strengths and weaknesses? Don't be afraid to be vulnerable. I think, you know, you're going to kind of pick and choose those moments. You'll, you'll know those moments. And so I would try to tell people to try to think about that. Welcome to Long Blue Leadership, presented by the U.S. Air Force Academy Association and Foundation. Your host for this edition of Long Blue Leadership is Dr. Doug Lindsay, USAFA class of 92, speaker, author, leadership consultant, and currently serving the Center for Character and Leadership Development as executive editor of the Journal of Character and Leadership Development. And now, Dr. Doug Lindsay. My guest today is Major Nate Dial, a 2010 graduate of the Air Force Academy with a bachelor's degree in economics. As a cadet, he was the fall 2009 cadet wing commander and was also the summer 2009 basic cadet training director of operations. Soaring instructor, Naval Academy exchange cadet, and he even spent a summer in Peru on an immersion program. He's a 13-year active duty Air Force officer currently flying RC-135 reconnaissance aircraft out of Omaha, Nebraska. Major Dial's desire to feed his mind and grow as a leader is pretty insatiable. He earned a master's in public policy from the Harvard Kennedy School in 2012. He completed the Euronato Joint Jet Pilot Training Program in 2013, and he even received a doctorate in political science in 2021 with his concentration being on NATO in the 21st century. He's a 2021 Air Force Academy Young Alumni Excellence Award winner, and in 2022, completed the Aspen Strategy Group Rising Leaders Program. He is a student and analyst of public policy and commits time to solving the complex problems that think tanks, startups, boards, and private companies sometimes face. He is also a member of the United States Air Force Academy Association of Graduates Board of Directors. Major Dial, thank you for uh, being with us today on the uh, Long Blue Leadership Podcast. Happy to be here. Uh, looking forward to the conversation. Do you mind telling us a little bit about where you grew up, You know, kind of where you started and what that was like and what kind of influences uh, had an impact on you when you started? For sure. So my dad was in the Army 30 years, uh, and my mom is a professor who traveled the world with my dad, getting a job at the local college, wherever that was. So obviously military was huge for me growing up, moved around a bunch as a kid. Uh, and then education was huge too, with obviously with my mom. So uh, naturally, uh, with those two items, uh, discipline, uh, reading a lot, uh, and I was a pretty decent little athlete growing up. I played basketball, golf, and soccer growing up as a kid. So you put all that together, it naturally kind of led me towards a life of service and a life of service uh, through the military with hopefully one of the academies. You moved around a lot during that 30 years, I'm, I'm assuming. Were there any uh, places that really left an impact on you or a memory for you? For sure. Uh, so just to give you a, a quick rundown. So born in Buffalo, New York, spent time in Seoul, Korea, Richmond, Virginia, um, Columbia, South Carolina, Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Then my dad ultimately retired in 03 in Richmond. That's pretty much home now. Uh, they've been there ever since in the same house. Uh, the places that stick out, uh, everybody has a kind of a, an, an indelible mark on my life, but Richmond, Virginia really is home. I mean, I was there kindergarten through third grade, and then I returned uh, 10th through 12th grade. So uh, it's a really, it's a, it's pretty much um, my central upbringing at this point. So that's, that's probably the place I would call closest to. And was that idea of kind of with your dad serving, and if I remember right, your grandfather served as well, 
uh, a path for you? Is that why the academy kind of resonated or you decided to go there? Or what was that thought process? Service is always huge for me. And so you're trying to figure out a place to serve that you feel comfortable as a kid. Um, when my dad was at the Army War College from 1999 to 2003, uh, you get to see a lot of different academy people come through, Naval, Air Force, uh, Army. My dad's a ROTC guy from Northern Illinois. So a lot of those people, when they would see me, uh, especially as a kid, I played a lot of golf. So my dad, ironically, didn't play a lot of golf or wasn't very good. And so, as you know, as an officer, especially 0506 is at the War College, golf's huge. And so he would actually have me go fill in for him a lot of times because I was a pretty decent player. And so I would be 12, 11 years old playing with these academy guys like, hey, Nate, like if you keep progressing, you'd be a great academy kid. So that was pretty much in, embedded in me from age about nine to 13. And it kind of never really shook away from me uh, growing up. So it was always kind of in the background and the foreground uh, for me my whole life. Like like all kids around my generation, I was six years old. I saw Top Gun, so I wanted to to be the Black Maverick. I wanted to go Mach two with my hair on fire. Uh, but uh, a couple family friends and uh, uncles have ships, so or boats. It's not so much ships, and I got seasick every time. So that eliminated the Navy, and I, I don't swim the greatest. Uh, so that definitely eliminated the Naval Academy. Uh, I didn't like camping as a kid either. Uh, and so, and, and my dad being an army guy was like, you're just not built for it. You're, you're not, you're not built to be an army guy. <laughs> so you should do that. do the air force Academy thing. Uh, and so it kind of, it matched up between the dad's wishes, uh, and, and also my desire to fly the air force Academy was the only Academy I applied to. I only did that in air force ROTC coming out of high school. So I was pretty determined that that was my direction. When did this idea of leadership really kind of start to come on? If you could explain a little bit about that. Yeah. So I. I'll kind of back up in time on that one in terms of service and leadership. It, it really started when I was 12 years old. So in fifth grade, again, moving around a lot. So I went from a really affluent area in uh, Chesterfield County in the suburb of Richmond, Virginia to Carlisle. And, and uh, I went from a, a brand new school with one of the best libraries you could ever imagine to a, a, a not as great school and not a great, a very old uh, library. And so as a huge reader, as a kid, uh, I was pretty determined to try to help and try to <laughs> figure out a way to improve that library at the school I was at in uh, Carlisle. And so I was inspired by Oprah Winfrey. She had this campaign going at the time where she put these large water jugs uh, in the 50 largest malls in America and said, hey, people, just throw your loose change in these jugs. And our goal is to try to send 50 kids to college. And they ended up raising a ton of money enough to send 56, I want to say, kids to college. And that really resonated with me as a kid. I was like, I want to do something like this on a smaller scale for my elementary school to raise money. Uh, it's for books. So I had this idea, pitched it to people uh, at my dad and mom's work, and they agreed to match whatever money we raised at my local school uh, to buy books for kids. And so I made this presentation to the school principal, and he uh, said, we had other funds coming in. We're not really interested in your program that you want to try to pitch us on. I... Uh, Continued to read and kind of do it on a local level in my own house. Uh, I ended up having over the course of the year about 120, 150 bucks uh, that I made, got the matching from my mom and dad's work and then bought books for every kid in my elementary school class. And so I wrote Oprah about it, about how she inspired me, everything else. And then she had me on the show and then donated $5,000 worth of books in my name. And so at that point, it really kind of made a mark on me of, you know, you can make an impact on this world uh, if you're passionate, inspired about a part problem or a challenge that you want to go solve. And so I think that as a 12 year old kind of got that going in me. Uh, and so I was kind of always looking around uh, places. And so given the dad service and then all the uh, absolutely amazing opportunities you get at the Air Force Academy, they kind of just led me towards that of like this place will help me go to 
my highest of heights, uh, whatever is possible for me, for sure. That idea of wanting to make a difference, right? Why you? Why did you feel that calling to want to do that? I'm not sure if it's really like, why me? I think it's more like, why not? It's kind of how I would answer that. And my parents were always really good about anything that I was passionate about of nurturing it. If it was educational, um, if it was about impact, my parents really nurtured it. And they were like, okay, like, let's, let's continue to explore. Like, let's ask questions. Like, I'll help you. And so I think having a, a, a foundation of a family like that, that didn't put any limits on me and said, we want to nurture that desire to help. Uh, I think that's probably the why was that I had this idea. My parents didn't shut it down or poo poo it. They were actually like, yeah, they put, they put gasoline on the fire. Let me go <laughs> uh, burn a little bit more. So that was probably how I would, I would say that's the why. What drew me to the academy over other schools was I wasn't going to be judged just on my academic performance. It was the academics, it was the military, it was the athletics, it was the leadership. There was so much going on there that uh, I was a very much a busybody as a kid. And going there was going to be able to feed that busybodiness because there's so much going on. There's 36 hours worth of things to do in a 24-hour day. Uh, so you were never going to be bored at that institution. So that really spoke to me. And what's also nice about that too is when you have a bad performance, let's say in a physics 215 class, you can take your frustration out on the intramural field or help instruct somebody as a soaring IP. Uh, so I think that ability to try to nurture every piece of my brain, uh, any kind of desire I had was awesome there. So I think it was just super enriching because, again, uh, I would talk about the academy as it's a, it's a will issue, not a skill issue. That if you have a willpower, there's people at that place that want to help you get there and want to help you succeed, whether that's your classmates, your upperclassmen, or the instructors. Uh, people really invested in people becoming their best selves. So I think that's how I would probably encapsulate my journey there. And so there was obviously the individual drive from yourself, but did your AOCs, faculty, staff play a role in that? I mean, how did that shape how you showed up as a cadet? Yeah, huge. So I, I was a track athlete my first two years at the academy and my career got ended because of two knee surgeries. So that happened. But what spoke to me around the track team was uh, the late Ralph Lindemann, who was the coach there for many, many years. When you're in your off season there, he gave you every Wednesday off to go to EI. And so I always helped me as a freshman understand that athletics isn't my job. My job is school and being the best cadet I can be. Uh, and so I think that set me with a really big foundation around like how to balance and compartmentalize the many parts of your life. So I think that was a great foundation as a freshman of I have this athletic performance I have to do. But at the same time, at the end of the day, like I'm still a student, I need to get the best grades I can get. I need to try to make sure I can perform as much as I can. So I think having that was really huge for me initially. Uh, so that was a great foundation. I had an amazing AOC my freshman year who uh, was all about performance. And so he was a, a pilot, B2 pilot, uh, and he was about the numbers. And so I was a pretty good performer in terms of like the knowledge test and my academics and athlete athletics. And so he was much like, hey, man, based on your numbers, like you can go as far as you want at this place. And I never really thought about that until he really sat me down and told me that after my first semester. Uh, so that, again, like continue to fuel the fire of like, just keep pushing the envelope and do as best you can here. And then the same, like my sophomore and junior year, I had an amazing AOC F-16 pilot type uh, who continued to nurture me. Uh, and then my senior year, uh, my AOC was a, a maintainer uh, who, again, like just gave me a lot of that like broader leadership around um, how to inspire others. So I thought all that leadership from the AOCs was great. And then my instructors were amazing. I, I still talk to my advisor uh, and my thesis advisor to the academy now. 
I, I probably send them an update email every six months. Uh, so those people who invest in me, I'm always very thankful. And I, I know I wouldn't be here without a lot of their help and uh, just nurturing for sure. Was Cadet Wing Commander ever kind of something you thought about or is it just something that kind of just happened as a byproduct of, of your ability to kind of lean in and take advantage of those opportunities? I'll tell a crazy story. So I actually was pretty determined to leave the academy after my sophomore year. So I just, I think everybody that sophomore year is just like the doldrums where everybody kind of just does not like that place. And I was definitely one of those people. And, uh, you know, you're just grinding and nobody cares, right? You're a third degree. So you're not the, the cool fresh that everybody picks on. And you've got so many more days left junior, senior year that you're like, I'm just out on this place. Uh, so I, I applied to a couple of universities to transfer. And there was two other friends of mine who were doing the same thing. And we were helping each other out. The other two people ended up leaving. Um, one went to UPenn and one went to UCLA. But I ended up staying. And so I just kind of prayed about it and said, hey, you know, should I leave or should I stay? And, and I made a, a pact with God that if I got a couple of different programs I would stay because it meant I was doing really well. So I was soaring IP, it was a Navy exchange, and then it was uh, the summer immersion to Peru. And if I got all three of those, I was like, I have to stay. Like, I'm just doing so well here. And it's such an amazing opportunity, you got to kind of have to stay. Uh, and so I stayed. I went to the Naval Academy. And while I always wanted to go there, I'm back on the East Coast. I'm seeing a ton of my friends on the weekend who I grew up with being a Virginia kid. I was absolutely miserable at the Naval Academy. Uh, I don't want to get too much into it, but it was bad. Uh, it was bad in terms of uh, the kids I had a room with weren't the greatest. Uh, there's tons of rules there. Um, how they train freshmen is so different than how we do. The culture is very different. Um, and so it actually made me appreciate the Academy that much more. And I got back to the Academy my <laughs> second semester junior year after the, the exchange. And I was like, we got to make this place fun. Like you guys, we don't know how great we have it here compared to the other academies. Uh, and so I was on this campaign of like, we got to make being a cadet fun again. Like that's what we got to do. <laughs> and like make people appreciate this place. And so uh, I remember talking to my AOC at the time and having this kind of epiphany that, no, this place is awesome. I'm so happy to be here. This is great. We have so, uh, so much awesome opportunity here. Um, you know, what job should I apply for as a senior? And he was like, Nate, like you should apply for cadet wing commander. I was like, nah, I'm not that guy. I'm not that person. And then he like, kind of broke down uh, whatever the cadet equivalent to a surf is. And then just uh, that kind of inspiration that I had at the time to try to help and make it uh, just a better place for cadets. And he was like, just take that energy and try to pour it into the cadet wing. I think it'd be great for it. And so his, uh, again, his fuel to the fire for me made me think about it. And then I'm a pretty determined person. So once I kind of get myself locked onto a vector, then I, I give it my best effort and it ended up working out you kind of had that epiphany that kind of figuring it out of, I own this, right? This is me and what I can do. And, and I'm going to make the most out of it. You came to the Academy. Did you know that flying was the way to go? hundred percent. I mean, I showed up for the Academy to, to fly um, pretty standard person in that way. Uh, I got to appreciate it more though, because I had this really interesting peanut allergy and uh, there was a time where I didn't think I was gonna be able to fly because of this peanut allergy and so I had to go through all these Dobmer physicals, uh, which I'll describe one. It was uh, I had to eat peanut butter over the course of eight hours. And every 20 minutes, they doubled the dose, starting with a, an eighth of a teaspoon all the way up to uh, a half a cup. And they had all the, the like the donads on me to monitor everything. Um, and so it was like the ultimate last test I had to do to pass to make sure I'd you know, wouldn't die if I ate peanut butter, I guess, uh, in the plane or have like some type of shock or uh, incapacitation. So I passed that. But that like 
three month process of all the physical f- tests I had to do around this peanut allergy um, had me really thinking about what else what I would do. And I just felt really fortunate to be able to get through that and still be able to live my dream. And so uh, uh, I really do empathize with people who have some type of medical issue who got to the academy thought they were going to be able to fly, then found out later that they couldn't. And then, uh, you know, what do they do next? Uh, and so having had that journey, I, I can definitely empathize with the cadets who have that. And I've talked to a decent amount of people who've had that. With the success that you had at the academy, what were some of the, maybe the leadership principles that you pulled out of your time at the academy? The first thing I would say is relationships really matter. Well, I think some of my successes would not be available without classmates or upperclassmen who poured into me or offered opportunities or offered help uh, along the way. Uh, I think we all can talk about as grads, uh, people who are still in our lives, right? They're the best men in our wedding, they're groomsmen in our wedding or bridesmaids in our weddings, right? That's kind of how it works out. So that kind of family atmosphere there is very important. And the relationships matter too, because you're going to fast forward from graduation, you know, eight, nine, 10 years, you're going to weapon school with these people, you're in combat with those people, you're on the radio. So having that relationship builds trust and builds trust means accomplishing whatever the goal is or the mission, especially in hard times. So I would say relationships matter. Therefore, how you treat people is very important. Uh, When in doubt, take the high road. Uh, When in doubt, err on the side of grace. Those are the kind of messages I would tell somebody. Uh, so that's like a very just like an interpersonal skill I would talk about for the leadership part of it. And then the second thing I would talk about is being approachable and accountable. I think all the the best leaders I saw, whether it was cadets or staff or faculty or AOCs, were all approachable and accountable. So I thought those are the two things I would hang my hat on going forward. Uh, and then just understand that you only get better with reps. So putting yourself out there, trying new things out, not being afraid to fail. When in doubt, ask questions to people who've already been there before. I think those are probably the biggest things I've definitely learned as a cadet. You graduated in, in 2010. You kind of went off. You're doing the flying thing. Very intentionally, you have stayed connected to the academy. It's hard to give you a why, but I can kind of give you a feeling, I think, of the why. So the feeling I can talk about in this is around kind of like your first relationship with a significant other where you have all the highs, all the lows, you care about that person a lot. Even if you go your separate ways with something else, you always kind of keep tabs and you want to make sure that person's in a better place than when you, whenever you kind of broke up or did, did something different. It's kind of the same way how I feel about Yusafa. It's the first decision that I made on my own was choosing to go to that school. Obviously, I talked about choosing to stay too and stay committed to it in, in that process. Uh, and I know I wouldn't be here without those four years. And so I think that kind of feeling of connection and that relationship being such a integral part of my life, I could never really just separate away from it completely. Uh, and so I think that's part of the reason why of always staying connected and then always figuring out ways of how can I support uh, in a way that um, is meaningful. And can you talk a little bit about some of those uh, ways that you support in terms of what you do to kind of help give back with your time and, and what you do? I think like many grads, you always find cadets or cadets find you. So I think that's a very basic one that I've done from day one is given the profile, uh, a lot of people hear about my story or, or interested in some of the similar things I already did. So cadets will reach out and I could probably talk you through a litany of cadets since I've graduated who I help out with that and stay connected with. The, the second thing too is obviously now with the endowment that we started. So 
put money in at a small amount. It was uh, $20.10, so a little bit of class pride there. Um, a month into a fund that went with the AOG. And then over time, our goal was come back for the 10-year reunion and then figure out what we want to do with the sum of money. So through that program, we were able to raise $330,000, of which we put 210000 of those dollars into a endowment that at the time, 2021, we could all remember COVID, uh, seeing some of the stories online around the cadet experience <laughs> was really heartbreaking. And so we wanted as a class to try to help with their morale. And so we have this endowment that gives $5,000 to the uh, number one cadet squadron for their morale fund. So it's as no strings attached, you can kind of get given DOD and government, but it's if they want to redo their SAR, they can do it. If they want to go to Chipotle and have a big Chipotle dinner. They want to go to Top Golf or rid it out with like whatever they want to do to increase their morale as a squadron. Uh, we fund that with $5,000 every semester. Uh, and so that's a way I've given back of just trying to find, we have these funds, we have a, a need of the cadets. And so that's how our class decided to do that. And I just know I'm a, I'm a connector, I'm a conduit for that. So able to help with that. Uh, and then obviously uh, recently this past May uh, when uh, some of the people on the board called and asked if it wouldn't be an appointment or on the uh, AOG board, uh, jumped at the opportunity uh, to try to lend my services and ideas for sure. There were highs and there were lows. To have those highs and really have those successes, we've got to understand those kind of low points too and who we are. And it sounds like the highs may not have been possible if you didn't kind of sort through those lows as well, right? For sure. For sure. I think uh, uh, it's it's Conor McGregor's trainer that has a book that's either we're winning or we're learning. We're accomplishing the goals and you're going to get some things out of it. But I think all of my greatest growth moments come through some type of failure or uh, hardship. And so I think I'll, I'll give an example as a cadet, right? Is I'd never done poorly, right? Academically, but I remember <laughs> failing a GR in a, a super high level Spanish class as a freshman that I like, had validated into. And so it was the first time where I had to humble myself and ask for help. I was the only non-native Spanish speaker in this class. And so asking people for help, uh, I was like, hey, I don't get this. Or hey, I need to study with somebody or something else. That was the first time I had to humble myself in an academic setting to do that. Uh, and so that was a, an opportunity to learn uh, of that. You can't just blast off on your own. You, if you want to get to this place, which was get an A in this course, you're going to need to lean on some classmates and ask for help and, and, and be like, hey, I don't get this. And and that is a strength. Um, and I think a lot of us, when we get to the academy, we're all such type A personalities who are highly successful, who have a lot of positive affirmation coming into that place. It's the first time you get smacked in the face with any kind of <laughs> not high performance slash average performance slash below average performance. And so I think how do you recover from that uh, is huge in the growth. And so there's tons of opportunities like that I can talk through at the academy where at the time it was a low, but it really was something to kind of harden me for the next situation, uh, whether that was to give empathy for another person or to prepare me and harden me for the next challenge that's coming. So I can, when it comes again, then I'm successful and able to overcome the situation. It sounds like, you know, from early on, you know, again, your example, your grandfather, example, your father, your mother, and all that, that idea of service and that really idea of kind of giving it your all, how does that influence your leadership today? So the first thing I try to do is, is just offer two things that one, I'm available. Uh, so, and this isn't a one-time relationship is what I always try to lead with is that if I'm taking time out of my day to talk with you, whether that's in an official capacity because you're in my chain of command or an unofficial capacity, that this isn't a one-time conversation. 
that I understand that not everybody's prepared or has questions or answers or challenges right now that it might come in the future. So, hey, I'm available when future things happen. If I'm the person that you want to come to with these things, or you think I can help. So that's the first thing of establishing that is this is a lifetime relationship. If as long as you want to tap back in, you got me that I'm here. So I think having that kind of long distance trust is really huge to establish to your saying it's a journey that people are going to it's cyclical, like we're going to have certain uh, periods or seasons in life. And then the second one is I normally try to lead with how can I help you? Because I think a lot of times we want to give people advice and not try to answer people's questions. And so I try to lead with answering your questions of, hey, like, how can I help? And sometimes it, it'll lead you to a lot of places, but I want to just be impactful. I want to leave everybody when I meet them better than when they, before they met me. Uh, and same with every organization. I'm going to leave every organization better uh, than when I entered it. So that's kind of the goals every time. How do you find time to do that? Or how do you make time to make sure that you're setting a time to be available to folks when they need it? And it's gotten crazier over the years. And, and my wife uh, is really good about uh, this in terms of helping me schedule my own time. But I have a, literally a standing six-hour window every Sunday from after church, so like 11 o'clock to 1700 to 5 p.m. every Sunday that I just block out for people to be available. So people hit me up and say, hey, Nate, I want to talk about X, Y, or Z. And I just send them, uh, hey, this is the time blocks. The next couple of Sundays, let me know when you want to fill in. And so I kind of compartmentalized to that because another part I think of leadership is being fully present. So we're all super busy as you're talking about, but for that six hours, I am yours uh, for whatever block of time, 30 minutes, hour, 45 minutes, I am yours and I'm fully committed. And if you have a read ahead for me, I'll prep for that for 10, 15 minutes really quickly to get myself smart on it. And then I'm here and I'm available. So I think having a dedicated, predictable time for people is heavy. And then I always tell people too, like if you email me, give me like 72 hours because I never know what's going on in the world. But pretty much now we're always collected to the internet. So 72 hours, I'll, I'll see it. And I'll, even if I'm busy, I'll tell you, hey, I'm super busy. I'll get back to you in insert time timetable. Uh, but I try to make it predictable uh, and then hold myself very accountable to those times. So you put that block of time there, right, where you're really being fully present and investing. What is it that you've taken away from that intentionality on time to be with other people? 95% of the time is enriching because I, I'm a classic extrovert. People energize me. Uh, so that's, we'll start with that. And most times people are really inspiring, whether it's some of these new cool things that they're doing or they're trying to pursue that's like, oh man, that's awesome. I hope that person gets there or I'm inspired by their tenacity to try to overcome something or get there. Or I'm just inspired by them to keep my game up. Because when you are when you have a mentee who's climbing these ladders and doing it, it's not like we're always keeping score, but we're always kind of competitive. It's like, hey, like I need to keep, keep pushing the envelope too. Like what am I doing right now? If these people are calling me and asking, I can't stagnate. I got to keep pushing too. So I, it's kind of a, a pseudo inspiration to kind of keep my game up too. Uh, so I think all of the above is always really helpful. Um, more recently in my 30s, I, I have noticed and try to make myself more available for the tougher conversations, especially with friends. As people have recently had one of my best friends, uh, son died, uh, who's under two years old. Uh, so making time for people like that to Sometimes the inspiration is just being there as a friend to be a, uh, that they're willing to share their vulnerabilities with you because, right? Like it's really easy to celebrate things with others. It's kind of tough to talk about when you're not in the best places. But I think as a friend, 
when people confide in you in those areas, that's really powerful. The older I get, that people are comfortable being vulnerable with you and trust you enough to be vulnerable with you. And so I think those times, while they're tough emotionally, make me feel good about myself, that people feel that they can come to me with those items as well. Uh, and so I, we're talking about a lot about my successes, uh, which obviously I'm very humbled by and, and, and pray to God that they continue to go. But some of it is about how do you help people get through those turbulent times? And I think those are some of the, the things that I think through myself that are some of the most rewarding items when people are kind of going through those doldrums or going through those dark places or those valleys of helping them get on the other end of it to be a part of that uh, process. That's really, 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 really powerful for me. You'd also mentioned that it kind of challenges you, you to be better. So I've noticed um, what you've chosen to do both educationally, get a master's, PhD. Um, not everybody does that. So you were kind of doing that to kind of challenge yourself mentally and intellectually, but also you're you're writing and you're you're putting out pieces, thought pieces and research as well. What's been the impetus for that? Is it just to contribute or to continue to push yourself? My dad used to always talk to me about as a kid. Uh, don't just bring me problems, bring me a problem and a solution or a potential solution. And so when I identify items that I think are suboptimal, I think I have a duty to whatever I'm criticizing to add to the body of work to try to get to a solution. So talking about some of the research, right, on the NBA, I'm a huge basketball nerd. And so the research I did around the impact of college basketball on McDonald's All-Americans, it was because I was truly curious about, is the one and done rule that great or was two years of college be optimal or how about more, right? So that's a, a question I had. And so I was like, well, I have this skill set around quant research. And I'm passionate about it. So let's let's push it there. Um, or or more recently, a, the, the debate around the best 75 players in the NBA or 70, in the 75-year history of the NBA. Uh, uh, that paper that I put out there was, okay, like how could you evaluate that more quantitatively and objectively than writers talking about how they feel about people? Uh, so those kind of items are there, or obviously the, the, the piece that I did back in 2020 around race in the military, like those are kind of, I identify a problem uh, or identify a situation and just try to help move the conversation forward through my either skill sets or works or experience. Nate, one of the things that you had written before was a conversation that you shared a little bit about between your grandfather and your father to you about the talk. Do you mind talking a little bit about that and sharing a little bit about what that meant to you? Sure. So the talk. Uh, it's a tradition uh, where minorities explain to their adolescent child, normally males who are coming of age, some of the stereotypes that they got to overcome and try to give them some techniques of, of, of how to overcome them that they've developed over their time as an adult or in their same situation. Um, talking to a lot of friends, obviously, since my article published, it got a lot of highlights back in 2020 around the, the George Floyd summer. Uh, it's a tradition of a lot of different minorities. So it kind of takes different shapes, but it's a very similar overall concept. And so with the talk, there's a couple things that are pretty important is that it's dependent on time and it changes and evolves. So I'll use my own family as the examples I kind of talked about in the article, which is, so my grandfather was in the conscription, World War II segregated enlisted military. And so he, he served there, finished his tour of duty, moved to Chicago, had a GI Bill, tried to use a GI Bill to to buy a house and a VA loan, but couldn't because right redlining was very apparent in Chicago. And so you can only buy a house in certain parts of Chicago uh, where he get a loan. Uh, and so, you know, what he learned in his time was that what's on the piece of paper 
in terms of uh, what happens may or may not apply to you as a black person in America in his time. So that's what he kind of taught my dad. So my dad has his situation. He goes on to college, ROTC commissions. He's out in Germany on his first assignment. And my grandfather goes and goes and visits. And so uh, he has my dad go through the gate multiple times. And my dad at the end of it, the second or third time going through the gate, is kind of like, hey, pops, what's up? And essentially, my grandfather confessed to my dad. He's like, I never thought I would see a day where a white enlisted member would have to salute my son. You know, right? Showing like, okay, like this, this progress is happening uh, in America. And so he's seeing that in real time too. And so that kind of similar moment, I think, happened with my father and I where my dad's probably cried in front of me like three times his entire life. And I can definitely remember the first time, which was the parade uh, for Parents Weekend the fall uh, when I was cut wing commander where, you know, you come down the parade field, you're the number one person coming out, you, you lead everybody, the 4,500 cadets in the wing. And so after the parade happens, you talk to your family and everybody's around. And uh, my dad was like visibly <laughs> emotional uh, because I, I think for him, he never thought in his wildest dreams his son would ever have that kind of an opportunity or potential. Like he thought I could get to the academy and graduate and probably get a pilot slot and, and do my thing. But I don't think he ever thought I could be the cadet wing commander. Um, and so I think he was just really overtaken uh, about, again, like the progress that has been made uh, in, in our country and whatnot. So I, that's kind of the talk. And so I'm kind of looking forward to what that looks like with my kid, right? Like I don't have kids yet, but hopefully uh, God blesses me with the, with some kids. And so to be able to share that kind of similar moment with them, I, I'm really looking forward to uh, in terms of what I've learned, but then what they're going to teach me too about how America's progressing. I think a lot of times when we look at leaders and especially successful leaders, we just assume it's all good and it's, there's all this good stuff, but we don't always understand that kind of behind the scenes that sometimes you've, you do have to do those downshifts, right? It's not all up. Sometimes we have those ups and downs we've got to deal with, right? 100%. Uh, and, and sometimes you're self taking a knee, right? Like, well, I am, I'm not all here either. Uh, and, and being again, approachable and accountable of saying, I'm not all here. So I need to work on me, uh, and, and, and practice what you preach. I, I always think it's quite funny when I see squadron commanders talk about family time and, and balance. And then I see them in their squadron at 7 30 PM at night, right? If, if you're doing that, uh, everybody then feels obligated to do it too. So if you want balance, right, it's how are you practicing what you're preaching there, right? Are you leaving at five, even though we know we have a lot of more to do, but We'll get to it tomorrow. Or, hey, I, I'm when I was a flight commander, I used to always show up at 8.15, so like 45 minutes afterwards, because I always worked out in the mornings on base. So I'm like, hey, I prioritize my fitness. I'm, I know the duty day starts at 7.30, but I'm going to show up at uh, 8.15 because I prioritize my health and like working out. I hope you do too. Um, and then I would always, on Fridays, um, if I could let everybody go around like two and then just stay for the rest of the day to try to help people have balance around that. Like, Hey, like everybody else can leave. I'll handle all of it myself on a Friday, start your weekend off now. Uh, so try to like, that's part of the, uh, accountability responsibility. I think that we all as leaders owe our people. And the hardest part is practicing what you preach, especially when things get hard, uh, uh is how do, how do you sustain, uh, the idea or the principle uh, when sometimes the short-term benefit will feel good in the moment, but overall for the principle or the objective, you might not be uh, achieving that. What do you do for your own development uh, to kind of keep you sharp, to keep you showing up ready uh, for the next rep? I have a lot of mentors and friends outside of the military 
And so sometimes I normally try to reach out to them of challenges that they're facing and dealing with and asking questions around that to try to get a feel for how different industries are, are dealing with certain items or friends of mine. Uh, so I, that's a, an enriching part of it. And then I can also offer like some of my military um, experiences to those same people. So that's kind of a nice back and forth of uh, kind of intellectual uh, jabbing uh, and support for one another. Uh, a big thing for me is I start pretty much every day off 30 minutes every day with a devotional. So I'm again, religious. So I, I started with that in the Bible, then like kind of meditation. So that kind of keeps me centered, balanced every day, kind of a consistent foundation every day of how I'm going to start my day. Um, and then for the enriching part of it, I'm a huge biography person. Uh, so I read, uh, biography, I think, um, real life is always better than fiction. Uh, so I try to read up on that. And then I'm, I'm a big self-help person, whether that's podcasts. So, uh, those are that, but then again, to the balance part of it, I'm a huge sports guy. So your Rich Eisen's, Dan Patrick's, um, Bomani Jones's, uh, Stephen A. Smith's. Like I listen to those people too to try to <laughs> uh, let myself come down and be a normal person uh, and and be relatable to others who I who I lead. Uh, so I, I try to nurture both sides of it. Like my my personal, like let's just be entertained and, and decompress, but also, hey, uh, what what else is out there? Sounds like there's a lot of different ways that you invest into there to make sure that you show up and be present the way you want to. Right. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. Uh, Nate, uh, one of the things that um, sometimes people will have debates on is uh, that leaders are born versus leaders are made or somewhere in between. Do you mind sharing your thoughts about uh, kind of how you think about that based on your the work that you've done and your own practical experience? Are leaders born and they made or what does that what does that look like? I, I definitely am a nurture over nature person. I just think uh, too much of life has shown me that, uh, especially around um high leverage moments, right? So there, my dad taught me something very similar, but the quotes, an easier way to articulate the idea that people don't rise to the occasion, they revert to their training. So it necessitates the obvious question is how good your training. And so I think, uh, while people could have some like natural skill sets around leadership, uh, I think to hit your full potential, you've got to be nurturing that over time. And you only really get that through reps. Uh, you only get that through leadership challenge. That's why the academy is so awesome with the uh, with the leadership laboratory that we have there, and why, in a lot of ways, I prefer the Air Force Academy model over West Point, where West Point a lot of their top cadets stay the same over the whole year, versus our academy changes essentially three times: the summer, the fall, and the spring, uh, because it gives more people more opportunities to have some of those leadership challenges uh, to try to grow and develop. Um, so I, I'm a big believer in that, uh, that you need reps to be able to get there. Could you get lucky once or twice? But I think to really hone your skills and hit your potential, I think you have to have, uh, some type of environment that nurtures that out of you. You're exactly right. You know, we may ha all have different starting points on how we show up, but how we engage and what we do and, and how we do those reps and how often we do those reps are fully up to us and how we're going to, how we're going to manage that. Right. I can't necessarily control where I start, but I can control how I finish and how I engage with the process, right? A firm. Yeah, for sure. 100% agree with that. We're successful at the Academy. You're successful in the Air Force. You're a little over midway through uh, through your career. What advice do you have for young leaders? Biggest thing is control the controllables. And so by that, I mean, you control your energy, you control your attitude, you control your effort. And most importantly, you control how you respond to adversity people are always taking notice of that. So if you control the controllables and you worry about, you show up every day with high energy uh, or positive energy, you give everything great effort, people are going to want to help you. 
people are going to see that and, and follow you with that. And then you control your attitude. So how do you treat people? How do you approach people? Um, how do you operate in your day-to-day -day life? People respond to that. And so I think always having that in mind of control the controllables, especially around those four items, I would people, tell people to focus on that. And through those reps, as you get older, you'll get more tools in the toolkit. But I would start with that. Do you mind maybe sharing one of those adversities you faced and how you kind of moved through that in terms of maybe a challenge that you faced and you had to sit there and go, how am I going to respond to this? And, and maybe how that shaped you or maybe a pivotal one that you wouldn't mind sharing? I'll go with, yeah, I'll, I'll start with pilot trading, I think. So even though we talked about a little bit of some of these like valleys before, I never had really been in a dark place before, but pilot trading was pretty dark for me because it was the first time where I was, um, you know, an average or below average performer. Uh, this thing I always wanted my whole life, as we talked about already, of being a pilot in the Air Force. I'd done all the right things and <laughs> and and hit all the highs you can hit uh, educationally at the academy that to get so close to your dream and, and not be a great performer uh, was rough. Um, and so I think part of that was a, a great journey of just how do you deal with that kind of adversity and not performing as you thought you would or how you could. Um, I was, you know, went to an 89 ride and T6s. So for people who don't aren't familiar with uh, pilot training, that's like you're, if you fail this ride, like you're out of the program pretty much. Uh, and so it, it takes some hooks to get there. Uh, and so I, you know, was flying and, and, and got through that. So that was kind of, you know, seeing the the precipice of the cliff and then getting yourself off of it. Uh, but what was nice about that was like the, the light bulb went off later in T38s and I had the uh, tie for the top check ride for the initial check ride T38s at Shepard. So the light bulb eventually went off. And so some of that with me too was uh, being at Shepard, it's designed to be a single seat fighter pilot place. And so, you know, just trying to deal with that whole situation there at Injep was very interesting for me. Obviously, I wrote about it in one of my pieces. Uh, but what that experience taught me about seeing the precipice and then coming back, being somebody who was trying so hard but not performing, uh, what, what it helped me do, honestly, is empathize with people uh, who are struggling. So I know a lot of people at the Academy talk about like, you know, chemistry was my crucible or water survival was my crucible. And, and I like, I think all these people had it. And while I had not great performances, everything was really high, right? So you don't get become the cadet wing commander and not perform at a pretty high rate in the fall. So um, while I had challenges, it was nothing that I didn't overcome or weren't essentially speed bumps. That was the first like, no kidding, like I might not make it through this program moment. And so with that, that just gave me a lot of empathy for people and allowed me to ask better questions when, especially people who are high performers who are in this weird doldrum, I can ask a lot more questions and I kind of get some of those feelings that I felt back then. So that's one of those challenges that I think uh, that I would talk through around just making me a better leader. Uh, where in the, in, when I was living in it, it felt horrible and terrible, but being on the other end of it, two, three, four years from then, and I'll, I'll give an example. So I had a airman who worked for me. We can fast forward and see it's probably 2016-ish who was top linguist coming out, was a distinguished graduate of uh, his cryptological program, came to me and he was going through, uh, he was all doing some crazy stuff, right? Uh, <laughs> I had to get like an article 15 uh, from the commander and whatnot. And so when that was happening, I just set him down and, and we I would have a really good conversation around like, hey man, like this is weird. Like whatever this is right now, it's not it. And so I got to share a little bit about my story about pilot training and whatnot. And so we got to talk and I said, hey, man, it's what I'm going to do. You just need to take a week of leave. Go home. Get away from this place. Like re reset. 
come back, uh, and then let's let's talk again. So he was able to do that, and then we put him right into uh, the ALS program. So that's like their Airman Leadership School. So when they go from being uh, airmen to sergeants uh, and our Air Force for everybody, it's a, it's a big kind of bridge moment for them in terms of their educational development for their professional military education. And uh, I challenged him. I said, hey, man, let's get back on this DG train. Let's, let's, let's be a top performer again. This is your opportunity to recover, right? We, we, we hit this high. We got this Article 15, so now we're coming back. Uh, and so let's let's make it happen. And then he finished number one in his class, and he was back on the train. So I, I could use that as an example of where you know my personal crucible was able to hopefully help me as a leader relate to somebody. And then hopefully, now granted, the kid did all the work. He's amazing. He's doing great things now. Um, but to have a little bit of an impact on that, uh, I think was only because I went through my own hardship. So I, that's kind of that empathy that I talk about as a leader of having this moment, knowing that it's going to prepare me to lead somebody in the future. It wasn't just that you had gone through a hardship, but that you were open, honest, transparent about that as well, that you were able, willing to share that aspect with him so that you could go through that process, right? So it's just to be human about it. Anything else that you'd like to uh, leave our listeners with respect to, uh, you know, leadership or, or any other topics that we talked about today? I think the biggest thing is just be authentic. Um, I think we all have strengths, weaknesses. Um, and so being authentic to yourself of how are you building a team that highlights your strengths, that covers your weaknesses, and being self-reflecting and self-critical of knowing what those are. Uh, so I think that's probably the first thing I think for any leader. I think all the best ones I've been around have all been very, very self-aware. And so I think that would be the challenge, I think, for everybody. Try to, how are you self-aware around your strengths and weaknesses? Uh, and then the second one is, uh, you know, don't be afraid to be vulnerable. Now, you can't be <laughs> oversharing, uh, but but you're going to kind of know those spots where you can be vulnerable uh, and, and don't be afraid of that. Uh, some of the I can think about a wing commander who talked about his divorce in a in a in a public forum and how he had to take a knee and go to mental health and everything else. I was like, man, that's really inspiring for for the wing commander to talk about that openly at, at an all call. I was like, man, that's uh that's that's powerful to me. And so I, I think you know you're gonna kind of pick and choose those moments. Um, obviously, not everybody's gonna be a wing commander, but you'll you'll know those moments. And so I would try to tell people to try to think about that. Thank you for your transparency. Thank you for your journey and the example that you're setting for all the grads out there and, and everything that you do. And thank you for your time today and being on the uh, Long Blue Leadership Podcast. And Nate, in case some of our listeners want to reach out to you and connect with you, um, do you have some social media handles or some ways that they can get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. Uh, the first one, so all the publications and whatnot are on my personal website. So that's www.drnathandial.com. So Dr. Nathan Dial. Uh, dot com is my personal website. You can see all the publications. Uh, my Twitter handle, uh, where I publish a lot of things, there is uh, the real Nate Dial. Is the handle uh, LinkedIn Nathan Dial? You can find me. I'm sure if you're part of the Long Blue Line, you probably have a common connection or two. Uh, so uh, feel free to add me there. And that's my socials. And look forward to connecting with you all. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Uh, happy to be here. Thanks so much uh, for having me, and uh, look forward to talking to you sometime in the future. You've been listening to Long Blue Leadership, a production of the Long Blue Line Podcast Network, presented by the U.S. Air Force Academy Association and Foundation. The views and opinions of the hosts and guests do not reflect those of the United States Air Force, Air Force Academy, Association of Graduates and Foundation, its staff or management. The Long Blue Leadership Podcast drops every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. 
Subscribe to Long Blue Leadership on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes plus Alexa, and all your favorite podcast platforms. Search at Air Force Grads on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more for show announcements and updates. Visit longblueleadership.org for past episodes and more Long Blue Line Podcast Network programming.